morning. If you would, open with me to Romans chapter 16. I'm going to read for us the first seven verses of Romans chapter 16. Um, I'll explain more in a moment. This is going to be a little bit of a different uh, type of sermon. Um, we're going to actually go over this passage twice. This week, we're going to kind of pull some weeds because these the verses we're going to go over are, are rampantly misused um, or, or, or grossly misused to spread false teaching. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull some of those weeds of false teaching out. And then next week, we're going to go through the passage again and really dig into the riches that are here. So we're going to read the first seven verses this morning to start. And Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Gentria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Let's pray one more time together. Father, please give me grace to say what is necessary, what is true, what is honoring to you and upbuilding to this body. Pray that you would guide me by your spirit to be faithful and that you give us open hearts and minds that we would see the glory of the truth of your word, the glory of your design and creation to make us male and female. And Lord, I pray that we would come under this design in full obedience, following the example and command of our Savior. In praise in his name. Amen. I had uh, last week opened with an example with a, a few different scenarios. And one of the scenarios that I, I talked about was the example of a, uh, an intruder coming into the house, rummaging around in the basement in the middle of the night. Now, let's let's revisit that scenario. Um, let's say I'm, I'm in that scenario, and we hear this, this sound in the garage. And I, I lean over to, to Lindsay and tell her, name of gender equality, it's your turn to go check it out. <laughs> Is that really honoring her as a woman? No, it's not. No, it's not. There's no splitting of that responsibility. As a man, I'm to take that responsibility every time. And if I were to be the kind of man that would be doing that, you should not be listening to me preach. I should not be in this pulpit. It matters. It matters how we act as male and female. Men are designed and commanded to protect women. This is our calling. This is, this is what God has made us for. And from the fall onward, we see that this has been a problem. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes to, to tempt and to destroy and to kill, and he targets Eve. And Genesis 3 recounts for us that that Adam is right there while this is going on. He is with his wife watching this take place. And he is passive in abdicating his protective role for his wife. And so we see that this has been a characteristic problem uh, throughout, throughout all of redemptive history from the fall onward. What are, what are women to do? What, how, how can they 
help men in, in spite of the fall. And, and we were talking about this in Sunday school. It is, it is a challenging task. It's a challenging task as a wife to, to beckon a husband to, to fulfill the biblical mandate that men have been given. So this is an important topic. <clears throat> we need to understand that how we love God, we love others, must be in accordance with the word of God. It must be in obedience to the word of God. It must be in accordance and obedience to how we have been designed as image bearers who are image bearers even in our genders as male and female. So I, I, to, to just give two, two reasons why we're going to be, obviously we're going to be talking about gender this morning. We're going to be talking about gender this morning because of what I mentioned that these verses are misused to advocate for egalitarianism, ultimately for, for women doing things that God has forbid. And I want to give two, two reasons why this is worth our time, why it's worth taking the time to pull the weeds out before we go back through the text and, and, and dig in the riches, and, and why I'm not just on a soapbox with this. Let me give you two reasons. One, because God matters. And two, because the gospel matters. Both of those things are tied to what we do with gender. And let me explain. I, I mentioned we are made in the image of God. We are made to reflect God's glory and rule as image bearers. And part of that design is who we are as either male or female. We see this dynamic in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes about how we are designed in our gender to reflect either as men, the rule of God the Father, or women reflecting the submission of God the Son. For us to properly reflect the glory of the triune God, we must embrace and fulfill who we are called to be as male and female. The glory of God is at stake with this topic. Secondly, the gospel is at stake. In Ephesians 5, talks of, Paul talks about how marriage was designed from the very beginning to be ultimately reflective of Christ's relationship with the church. If we get gender wrong and consequent, consequently get marriage wrong, we do not, we will not, Reflect the gospel in the way that we are supposed to. If that does not happen in the marriages that are in, in the church, that will not happen within the church itself. And I'm, I'm not saying that just as a, a supposition, like if we do this wrong, then that might happen. We have seen this, this sort of fallout happen already, especially in the United States. High rates of divorce within the church. And then what do we see? We see droves of young people ultimately leaving the church as they get older and more independent. There's consequences. Those consequences, if you, if you look back, you just follow that right back to home. We have not embraced these rules well, and there have been consequences. This is not suppositional. This is this has happened. This is reality. What God has said is true. Gender matters. It matters for the sake of God's glory. It matters for the sake of the gospel. So this will be an atypical sermon, but the main point I'm going to be trying to pull out as we talk about various things is that God is glorified by men who act like men and women who act like women. God is glorified by men who act like men and women who act like women. So we, we're coming into the last chapter of Romans. Paul has just ended um, the, the first 15 chapters with a, a mini doxology. So he's making a shift here to give greetings to these various people. And it would be ideal to just go on uh, into 16 and just keep expositing. But we are, we've, we've thought it good and, and, and prayed through this to take time to specifically address lies that come from misuse of these verses, uh, what, how these verses are misused, 
they will, people will take Phoebe in verses one and two, say she was a servant. So it's from the word diaconess, they'll say, well, she must have been a deaconess. And then say, because she had church office, she could have any office. She's delivering this letter, it seems. She probably read the letter and commented on the letter. And there's all these suppositions that she must have been all this way up to essentially being a teacher and functioning in a leadership role, which is not in the text. In addition, in verse 7, talking about Junia, it's supposed that Junia is a woman. It's supposed that, that she was actually an apostle, and it's supposed that she actually had this authority over other men. And these things are twisted so as to undo clearer teaching on how God has called men and women to function within the church. And really, this, this isn't that complicated. When we, when, as We'll talk about this as we look at these verses. This is, this is not really that complicated of a matter. What it is, is it is a matter of obedience. We like to complicate matters of obedience because we don't like to obey in our rebelliousness. So we're going to take two sermons to, to look at this passage. I'm going to be pulling the weeds, like I said, and then Eli's going to preach next week, and he'll get to, to really till the soil uh, for us going through the text. So to start, um, we're going to talk about biblical womanhood. So we're going we're gonna to talk about biblical womanhood in general, and then we're going to go from there, get, get, go from this, and get some momentum, and then go into these first couple of verses. So biblical womanhood. We, we talked about how in Genesis 3, Satan came into the garden. He came into the first place that God was to dwell with man, the first temple, the Garden of Eden. And he came in there to subvert the order that God had made. God was to rule over man, who was to rule over women, and together they were to rule over all of the creation, to subdue it and establish dominion. And Satan came and tempted in the opposite order to dishonor God. He came as a serpent. As a, as, a, as a beast that was supposed to be ruled over, came and tempted the woman who did not follow her husband, who did not lead, and in all of that, they dishonored God. He tried to turn the creation order upside down in, in, a, in an attempt to dishonor God. And we have talked about this at different points. There is indeed nothing new under the sun. We, we have seen how Satan has slid their den to the church, the temple of God, now, and has done the same sort of tempting and lying and subversion. We see this not just in, in the church. We see, this, we see this in all spheres of life. Men are supposed to lead in the home. Men are supposed to lead in the church. Men are supposed to lead in society. And yet we see all manners of, of, of subversion in, in each of those spheres. Men are not leading in the homes as they ought to in, in our culture. Men are not leading in churches as they're, as they're supposed to. We even see how in society women are being considered for the draft for the military. This is not what God has commanded. This is not what God has designed. This is not pleasing to God. There is nothing new under the sun. Satan continues to attack. He seeks to attack on, on this basis of gender. Even, even within Christian circles, there's, there's both the issue of egalitarianism, which seeks to, to act as if women can do anything a man can do within, within the church or even in the home, in complete disobedience to Scripture, but even in response to that on the other side, we see how there are soft responses from those who claim to be conservative on this topic. To illustrate, the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention preached a series of sermons to his entire congregation with his wife up there preaching with him, teaching over men. And he claims to be uncomplimentary and claims to be conservative on this issue. He is not. 
That is not true. Even the, the term complementarianism seems to be a softening of what the reality is according to Scripture. The reality according to Scripture is patriarchy. You talked about this in Sunday school. The reality is that God is the one who rules. Biblical patriarchy is what we should call it, and we should not apologize for that. But to, to clarify, biblical patriarchy is based on the fact that God rules over all as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there we see the word patriarchy from the, the word potter to mean father, arche to mean rule, father rule. That's patriarchy. It's father rule. God rules as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is the one who rules. And men are called to rule and lead in a loving, obedient manner that honors God and cares for those under their protection. Please understand, there's the hinge. This is the difference between biblical patriarchy and the abuse of patriarchy. It is to care for those under the, the protection of those men for their nourishing, flourishing, and benefit. Biblical patriarchy is not God forcing women and children to serve men. Biblical patriarchy is men leading women and children to serve God. I'm going to say it again. Biblical patriarchy is not God forcing women and children to serve men, as if men were ultimate. Biblical patriarchy is men leading women and children to serve God. Men seeking the flourishing of those under their rule are the sort of men that will lead those under their rule to God for their sake, not for themselves. Biblical patriarchy is not the man coming home and demanding a sandwich from his wife but it is the man coming home and feeding his family the word of God. So how, how did we arrive here? Uh, how did we arrive here culturally? How did we arrive here um, even in the church and in, in homes within the church? Uh, there's a lot that can be said. I'm not going to say everything on this topic. You probably assume that. I'm not going to keep you here indefinitely. The, the, the basis of this the, the first level of subsidiary, the first level of responsibility is that this has not happened in homes. Men have abdicated their role and in a number of different ways. They have abdicated their, their role by, by being absentee, by being present but being soulless, by being present but abusive. This has happened because men have not, uh, men have not sought to lead their families with conviction that their families might be blessed in God. That's the problem. Men have abdicated that responsibility. Now, I'm saying that, but that the fault is not only with men. The fault does start with men. You see this, you see this dynamic in Genesis 3. Eve is the one who's tempted. Eve is the first one to, to actively sin, you could say. Uh, but when God calls this situation to account, when he comes, he asks the man, he asks Adam, what has gone on? The accounting starts with men. But Genesis 3 also does show us that Eve is held to account for her misconduct, for her sin as well. So this is something that both men and women have to, to recognize and pursue repentance with them. This is not just a man problem. This is a men and women problem. And I, I think it's pretty obvious that evangelicalism at large has failed to instruct women in what God calls them to be and to, to give them warning markers along the way that they might be helped. There was an article a friend shared with me from uh, a 
website called Theopolis that was talking about this dynamic. And there was uh, a feminist who, who was looking into what evangelicals were saying about marriage and divorce. And the, the statistic is that in the United States, I believe, it's 70% of all marriages that end in divorce, divorces are initiated by women. That's over a two to one ratio. This is mainly women initiating divorce. So, so this feminist scholar went to a website called Sermon Audio. And what she did was she looked at the, I think it was like the 31 most popular sermons. And a lot of them were from conservatives, evangelicals, uh, conservative, even reformed Baptists and Presbyterians. And she listened to these 31 sermons. She wanted to see how churches were diagnosing this issue and bringing it to bear so that their churches would be benefited and, and warned and called to repent if needed. And what she found is that this was almost exclusively laid out as a problem with men, despite the statistics saying that's not the case. Women are being deceived in various ways in our culture, and unfortunately, many men in the church are not giving them any warning for their protection. And there's consequences for that. There's, this, this will hurt women. Here's how one author, one author puts it. Talking about this dynamic of women being pulled into to the lies of feminism. The woman who defines her liberation as doing what she wants or not doing what she doesn't want is in the first place evading responsibility. Evasion of responsibility is the mark of immaturity. The women's liberation movement is characterized, it appears, by this very immaturity. While testing themselves, or sorry, while telling themselves that they've come a long way, that they are actually coming of age, they have retreated to a partial humanity, one which refuses to acknowledge the vast significance of the sexual differentiation. I do not say that they always ignore sexual differentiation itself, but the significance of it escapes them entirely. And the woman who ignores that fundamental truth ironically misses the very thing she has set out to find. By refusing to fulfill the whole vocation of womanhood, she settles for a caricature, a pseudo personhood. The author is saying that women who buy into these feminist lies are actually dehumanizing themselves and hurting themselves significantly. Who do you think said this? Is this a firebrand pastor in your mind? Is this someone who gets on their soapbox a lot? That was Elizabeth Elliot. The, the little unimposing widowed missionary woman. She's bringing the heat because she knows what is needed. Hard truth is oftentimes needed for protection. And I certainly hope that we continue in this pattern of speaking, like my Pastor Jeff was saying, speaking the truth, that we might protect the women in our own congregation from these sorts of lies, that we would protect them from being deceived, from being dehumanized. And, and not just for the younger women, but also for the older women. The older women who have given themselves to biblical womanhood, who have given themselves to being faithful wives, faithful mothers, homemakers, and pursuing godliness. We, we need to protect them as well from regret and guilt being heaped on them by a culture that's telling them they should feel regret and guilt for things they should be glad for, that God is honored by. We must not let the culture lie to them. We must not let the culture heap guilt and regret on them in areas where they should be thankful for the Lord's grace. So in dealing with this issue, 
answer is that there's there's areas in which both men and women need to repent. Both. This is not a one-sided issue. This is for all of us. And yet when we see the need for repentance on both sides, oftentimes what we are given, because when women pursue this sort of course that is not in accordance with biblical womanhood, you see that women get worn out. They're not happy. Studies show this. The happiest women are the women who embrace what the word of God says. But what what response comes is not the instruction of what is true and where do we need to repent. Oftentimes what we get is this, this women's ministry approach that consistently takes women apart from the church, has a few zealous women act like pastors over these women, and then the discipleship that happens from these zealous women who are acting like pastors is not discipleship in accordance with Titus 2 to help them grow in womanhood in accordance with Scripture. It's about a, a sort of catharsis without concentrating on Scripture. We have arrived here because we are continuing the sins that we saw in Genesis 3, that we talked about in Genesis 3. Women as a result of the fall, have a desire for their husbands that seems to be a desire to take the husband's authority, which is sin. It must be repented of. And men, similarly, have a desire to be apathetic, to not care for their wives, to not nourish their wives. We have, I think in part, allowed women to reject their calling as women because we don't understand the significant meaning and glory that is to be found in biblical womanhood. When we are reading Proverbs 31 this morning, and you're, you're looking at all these things that the Proverbs 31 woman does, I, I would venture to guess, I'm not going to ask you to actually read your hand, but I'm, I would venture to guess that if, if you read that chapter and, and you came, I, I would just, I can't imagine anyone reading that, that chapter and thinking that woman doesn't have enough to do. Her life has meaning. She has plenty to do. She is exercising her gifts. She is exercising her intelligence. She is doing, doing meaningful work in all sorts of spheres of life. She, she's, even, she's doing all this, all this work to bless her husband, to bless her children. She's caring for their home. She's even doing work outside of the home on the side. And so her work isn't boring. It requires her full capacity. And it is met with a great reward. You see this. She is, she is praised. It's clearly this is reflective of praise of God on her. This is, she's receiving praise from her husband, praise from her children, praise in public. And if you saw at the beginning of, of the chapter, we were talking about this yesterday, this is praise that's coming from her mother-in-law. We don't typically think mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, and that's a sweet relationship. Mother-in-law is the one writing this. She's getting all manner of praise. She's getting all this sort of acclamation because what she is doing is reflective of the glory of God. She is far more precious than jewels. Jewels are used throughout Scripture. You can see this from Revelation 4. Jewels are used in Scripture to symbolize the glory of God. She is in a way beyond jewels reflecting the glory of God because she is bearing God's image appropriately as a woman. We must not reject the calling of women as if it's some role that lacks meaning. It has all glory and honor packed into it. We see this even with where Proverbs 31 is placed. This is at the end of probably the book that's most closely associated with wisdom in Scripture. And you see earlier in the book of Proverbs, God has created this world 
in, a, in, in this same sort of wisdom. The good wife is the culmination of wisdom for man. To find a good wife is the culmination of wisdom. And God has shown that even by how he's designed things. God makes everything. You see this in Genesis 2. God makes everything. He makes man. And it is not good that man should be alone. When woman is placed next to him as his helper, it becomes what? Very good. The greatest glory that's proclaimed over creation doesn't happen until woman is made to be man's helper. Womanhood is glorious. We must not accept lies that say anything otherwise. Within the context of the church, um, uh, let's flip over to Romans chapter 12 here really quick. I just want you to think in terms of we're, we are saying, on the one hand, that women cannot fulfill leadership roles in the church. Only men can do that. But I want you to look here at these gifts that God is giving in the church. Think about which of these women are actually excluded. from. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. So there's a good place of starting with humility and obedience to God. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have, all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one of another. So we don't all do the same thing, and yet we all benefit similarly from obedience and love toward, well, obedience to God and love toward one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. When you look at all the words there and all the gifts, the only one that you don't see throughout Scripture being associated with one is the leading one. That's it. Even with the, the dynamic of teaching, there is a teaching, like we mentioned from Titus 2, there's a teaching that older women are to do for younger women. Same, same root word. And in addition, Obviously, mothers. We've, someone was talking about this today, the impact of their grandmother on them. And we see this throughout Scripture with mothers and grandmothers having significant teaching impact on their children. Decisive impact on their eternal souls. Women have a glorious impact in the home and in the church. Serving others, showing hospitality, giving generously, and even, having, even having substantive theological conversations. These are all a part of a woman's calling in the context of the church. And what we're seeing here in chapter 16, we are seeing how impactful that was because this is inscripturated praise for women who are pursuing biblical woman. By women not just accepting their calling, but seeing to thrive in their calling, seeing to fulfill obedience to their calling as women, we see how strength pours out to all around them. Stronger marriages, stronger homes, stronger churches. And in a similar vein to what we see with elders, elders must manage their own household well if they are going to manage the household of God. In a similar vein, the woman who accepts her role in the home and does well with that, she will also have a trickle-down effect of, of, of godly, glorious impact on her church. It starts in the home and flows out, and we see that with godly women. So as men, for us who are men, we need to pursue nourishing and caring for our wives 
so that they can thrive in biblical warfare. We must not be apathetic or lazy or, or domineering as if they were there to follow us for ourselves. We are to help our wives flourish by leading them to God. And ladies, enjoy this. This is work that God has called you to. So enjoy it. Be content with it. And I, for me, this, I mean, this, we've talked about this. This is a difficult topic. This is a difficult sermon to have to be giving, but to have to be giving. And yeah, I'm just profoundly thankful the, for the, the various ways in which the women in our church are doing these things. It is a blessing and a grace uh, to just see how they are doing this well, how they are blessing all of us who are around them. This is, this is a hard sermon, but such an encouraging family to give it to. So that being said, we're going to look here um, at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to touch on verse 7. And then we're going to come back to discussing some of the other women in this chapter, um, just as an overview to conclude. So we're in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Chentria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Paul is taking this woman, Phoebe, calling her a sister, showing, showing the, the, the love, intimacy of the family of God and, and giving her praise and commendation. He refers to her as a servant. That's the same word that can be used to refer to a deacon. Uh, the Greek word is diakonos. Um, I, for me, I think it's unlikely for reasons both in the immediate context and in the broader context that she was actually a deaconess. Um, so I'm going to give my argument for that. I, I don't particularly care whether someone agrees with me on that or not, so long as they understand the broader point, which is that this is at least this is what I'm going to aim at. This is a shaky foundation to say that because this woman might have been a deaconess, that therefore women can betray the commands of Scripture and the pastors. That's why I'm going to address this. This is not a good foundation from which to leap into disobedience to Scripture. So let's talk about deaconesses. In the immediate context, what we just read in Romans 12, 7, those who serve, uh, who have this gift of serving, that's the same root word. That was used to talk about service within the church, a gift of the Spirit within the church. It was not used in the context of an official office. Additionally, in chapter 13, the government is called um, a servant of God. Obviously, that's not referring to them being a deacon within the church. That's a very general usage of the term servant. Uh, Christ is said to be a servant to the uncircumcised, in, or, or I'm sorry, a servant to the circumcised in chapter 15. So, you see how in the immediate context, Paul has used the same word for servant multiple times in general ways. And one commentator went on to argue that Paul's more consistent usage of the term is in general. So his argument was that you would expect him to specify when it is in an office, and there isn't much to specify here. So for those reasons in the media, I don't think it's likely that, that um, Phoebe was a deaconess. Um, I, I, it seems, too, that when Paul is telling uh, the church to welcome her, it, it, the crux of the reasoning for them to welcome her and help her is how she has helped others. And 
my point there is it's focused on her action. He's not saying welcome her because of her office. He's saying because she has been a, a patron to me, she's helped support me financially, you should help her if that even means financially or whatever way you need to help her. It's focused on action, not on office is my point there. Um, that there's a, a, something to be gained here from, from her working as a woman. She was a patron who supported Paul financially in a way similar to how women had supported Jesus and his disciples financially as we see in Luke 8. So she might have been a, a widow who had a substantive inheritance or a really successful businesswoman. Um, but the point being, she's taking what the Lord's blessed her with, and she's using that to bless others. So I, some of the more broad context arguments I would make to say that I, I don't think the Bible supports this, this idea of deaconesses. I'm going to borrow, this is from a book called Baptist Foundations, um, a chapter by a, a guy named Ben Merkel. If you'll go over with me to 1 Timothy 3. And just again, I'm just trying to show that this is a, safe, a shaky foundation, not to end the discussion about can women be deacons or not. That's a, that's a fair discussion to have. But this is not grounds for disobeying scripture is my point here, just to reiterate. So in 1 Timothy 3, um, Paul is talking about deacons. I'll, I'll start in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. So verse 11 there, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. That word for wives is just the general term for, for woman. So it's argued that this verse is supporting the idea of women serving as deacons or deaconesses. And I, I don't find that convincing for a couple of reasons. Uh, back in verse 2, Paul's talking about elders saying that they must be the husband of one wife. Verse 12, he says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. It seems like the consistent usage he's had here for the term woman is to talk about wives. So I, I don't think he's shifting all of a sudden for one verse to talk about the, the qualifications for women as deacons, because he, again, shifts back to men as deacons in verse 12. It just seems abrupt. This consistent usage of the term is not to, to talk about women in general, but to talk specifically about wives. So the, the question that comes up then is, what's the point about this qualification about the, the women here? Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And I think the answer is that a lot of what deacons would have to do is to serve widows. And in chapter 5, Paul goes to, to lengths to say how he's concerned about how, how Satan would lead astray some widows. It, so in propriety then, if a deacon's going to serve a widow, it would be good for him to have a wife come along with him for the sake of propriety. And it would be good for the sake of that, that widow's spiritual state that that wife would not tempt that widow towards ungodliness. So that's my answer for that. And again, if you're not convinced, that's fine. Praise God. Um, Acts 6. Um, we, don't, we don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll just say this. Acts 6, the, the church in Jerusalem is looking for, for 
for people who would, men specifically, who would who would serve the needs in the church, specifically widows. They would be deaconing. The word for, for deacon is used there as a verb. So I take Acts 6 to be talking about deacons. And like I said, specifically there, the requirement is that they be men. And you see men who are elected to that office. So, again, if you want to go back over to Romans 16 here, my point here is not the end of the discussion on women serving as, deacon, as deaconesses. My point is simply to say, this is not grounds. This is shaky grounds to, to try to leap to the conclusion that we can somehow disobey other clear commands, that women should be silent in the gathering, that they must not exercise authority over men, that they must not teach men in church. This is not grounds to disregard the commands of God. What men are called to, specifically as pastors, is an important role that is also a protective role. To allow a woman to be a pastor is the equivalent of letting the wife go check the bump in the garage in the middle of the night. False teachers are, are described as ravenous wolves coming into the church. Men must protect women from these ravenous wolves. And I'm not just saying that because it sounds like it could... It, yeah, it could go on a meme or get etched into a manly pillow. I don't know. But this is something that Scripture warns us about. We talked about that with 1 Timothy 5, how widows are targeted to be led astray by Satan into ungodliness. They need to be protected. They need men to protect them. 2 Timothy 3 talks about the same dynamic. False teachers who go after um, weak women or gullible women, trying to attack women. They need men to protect them. You see in 2 Peter and Jude when, when these other false teachers are talked about, and they have this immorality that surrounds them. And it seems like what they're saying is their immorality is to prey on women sexually. Pastors should be godly men who will protect the women in the church. Letting a woman step into that role is abusive towards them. If a woman, you know, what if a, a woman wants to serve as a pastor? And I, I think the better question is why? Why would they want to serve as a pastor? And I think the answer is that desire to rule over men found back in Genesis 3 is a result of the fall. We see something glorious here with Phoebe. Phoebe has embraced biblical womanhood. She has helped support Paul and his mission. She has served her church. She is receiving glory in the scriptures. And it's not because she went beyond what God commanded. It's because she embraced what God commanded. She embraced what she was called to be, what she was designed to be as a woman in Christ. Skipping down to, to verse 7 here. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So this verse is used to say, Junia must be a woman who must have been an apostle equivalent to the 12 apostles, and therefore had authority over men, and therefore women can exercise authority over men. And if that sounds all like a stretch to you, it should. Praise God that it does. It is a stretch, because it's false teaching. So who who are they? Let's let's look at this. Who, who, who's Andronicus and Junia? It is likely that this name for Junia um, is a woman's name. Um, it's, it's likely as well, given the structure of, of how he's laying these names together, because it's similar to verse 3 with Prisca and Aquila. 
it's likely that Andronicus and Junia were a married couple. And they were a married couple who, uh, it seems, were Jews before they were converted. They were kinsmen uh, to Paul, which he uses that that word back in 9.3 to talk about his kinsmen who are our fellow Jews ethnically. Um, and then it, it seems as well, they were converted out of their Judaism even before uh, uh, Paul was converted. It says they are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. And so they had been converted before Paul. They had served with Paul in his mission and had actually been imprisoned with him. It says that they are well known to the apostles. And what that means is, uh, is debated. It could mean that they were held in high regard amongst the apostles. There is also possible that they could have been held as being outstanding apostles. But even then, I think we need to be careful to understand that that, that word apostolos can mean something like a messenger as well. You see this in 2 Corinthians 8.23, the term being used more specifically to talk about a messenger. Uh, Barnabas could have fit into this as well as a, a missionary sort of messenger because he did not have, as far as we know, um, a, a face-to-face encounter with Christ that Paul and the Twelve had had. So there's this idea that being an apostolos, being a, a messenger, doesn't necessarily mean you're in a position of authority within the church. We see this even in the early church writings. So there's something called the Didache. Um, and in chapter 11, they talk about this. They talk about messengers, apostolos. They talk about messengers who would come, and, and if they stayed more than two days, they must be a false prophet who shouldn't continue to be supported by the church. So to, to say, if Junia is a woman, and if Junia is being referred to here as an apostle, it is well within the bounds of how Scripture uses this word and how the early church fathers understood this word to say that she didn't have a position of authority in the church. So what do we think about all this? Well, this is again a woman laboring in the Lord, embracing her womanhood, doing missions, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, and doing glorious work. There's nothing to indicate that what she did was uh, achieved by going outside of the commands of God. In fact, when we look um, at this section more broadly, going from verses 1 through 16, there's a number of women here. Um, a lot of the historical comments here, uh, and there, I've found a lot of help with Tom Schreiner's commentary on Romans. Um, so I lean on that quite a bit with some of the, the details here. It's been really helpful. Um, he talks about how there's, there's a number of women here, Prisca, Mary, Junia, Tryphania, Tryphosa, Persis, the mother of Rufus, Julia, and the sister of, of Nereus. And, and, and you see this word for, for work or labor used about them that has this idea of doing missions work, doing missions labor. And so you see that uh, with Priscilla and Aquila, how they joined in Paul's mission. These women are doing glorious things. They are, they are producing glorious fruit that is pleasing to God. They know God. They know the scriptures, and they are obeying the scriptures. They are not trying to circumvent the scriptures and to make it up as they go. They are being obedient. They are doing this mission, and, and wonderful things are coming by God's grace through them. Women can and do achieve wonderful things in their obedience to God by God's grace in them. There is no need to send them into the garage. We see this, uh, just, just to go over some of the things that are in this section more broadly, not just in chapter 12. The things that, that women do in the home and in the church, 
They sacrificially worship with renewed minds. They serve the needs of the body. They teach other women and children. They exhort others in appropriate ways. They give generously. They show mercy and cheerfulness, genuinely love God and others. They rejoice in hope, endure tribulation, constantly pray, show hospitality, overcome evil with good in their evangelism. They pay their taxes and submit to the government as model citizens. They fulfill the law by their Christ-like love. They repent and put off sin when needed. They slay the dragon in the armor of light, the armor of God. They welcome weaker brothers. They build up the body. They sing God's praises. And these women are glorious. This has not been the easiest sermon I've ever had to preach. And I, again, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for God's grace that this is, this is a, a, I just see this as a help to the women here to abound all the more, to abound and not be deceived by the lies around them, but to just continue on. And I'm, I'm just immensely grateful for that. And indeed, I see how the women are fulfilling what we're going to see as we go further into 16, as I alluded to just a moment ago. They are crushing Satan underneath their feet by God's grace in them, by embracing biblical femininity, not by trying to get around it. They're demonstrating the Savior's love for us in this body. So for us, for us who are men, we need to see how Christ has loved his church. He has loved his church by laying himself down sacrificially for his bride seeking to make her clean by the washing of the water of the word. And we need to live in a similar sacrificial, loving way that those under us might be nourished and that they might grow and flourish in knowing God. Jesus has taken the ultimate intruder, that is the snake, and crushed him. And we need to protect and love and care for our women similarly. And for all of us, this is, this is all... This is a common theme, regardless of if we're men or women. We are all to follow the example of Christ, to love this church sacrificially, to build this church up in Christ by God's grace in us. And know that how we do that as men and women is glorious, just like we're going to see here further in chapter 16.